of you know that um, part of my work as a professor and a teacher is that I speak a lot and teach a lot on ethical issues. And I've, I've learned over time in teaching my students to put on a different set of glasses, lens, so to speak, to get a big picture of all that God says through the Holy Scriptures, that progressive revelation from Genesis through the Hebrew texts, through the New Testament texts, to what God is doing for you and me today, which is building a city. And to get a really big picture, particularly on the issue of human sexuality, which is really at the heart of what we're going to talk about. And those set of lenses include taking those images, particularly of the New Testament, seriously. The rule of God, the community of God, the ecclesia, the church, if you will. And then what does it mean to be a disciple? And so when we come to the so what this morning, I want to take that, those images, that set of glasses, and look at our issue through those lenses this morning. You see, the text that we're going to deal with today in our study is, uh, Huberson told us from Mark chapter 10, uh, it's a significant text, it's an important text, and the whole semantic context of this text is going to teach us about the sanctity, the fact that marriage is sacred. So what I want to do is I want to start off in the context of the text in Mark chapter 10. I want us to unpack the text. And then I, I want to do something a little bit different. It's a little bit unique. I hope it works. That's why I need somewhere to sit for a couple of minutes. And then I want to finish with the so what. Now, now here's the fun thing that happened to me as I was working on this text since uh, Robert and Dave asked me to do it. Um, as I was reworking the text again, um, last weekend, my wife and I, uh, Sandy, we went down to Toronto. You. And as I read it this week, I said, San, it's unbelievable how this book changed our lives. So if you want to read a really good book, some of the stories and some of the illustrations probably aren't as, as pertinent in 2021 as they were when Sandy and I read it in 1975 and 1976. But uh, it's amazing how a book that accompanies the Holy Scriptures changes your life. It's a great book. So turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 10. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, it's page 945. Um, let's read verse 1, and that'll get us into the, the context, which is both geographical as well as narrative, and then, then I'll read the whole passage, okay? And we're going to deal with the paragraph that goes from Mark chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through to verse 16, and we'll, we'll deal with it all this morning. Okay, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. He left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered around him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now, there's a geographical context to this, which is really important, because this is what we call, in New Testament studies, the journey motif. Um, there are two chapters in Mark 
that are given over to this. And chapter 10 is right in the middle of that. It starts in chapter 8 and verse 27. Jesus is outside of Palestine. He's in Caesarea Philippi. He's at his furthest point from Jerusalem. And if you follow the geography, he goes down through Galilee. He got to Capernaum. Now he's in Judea. By the end of chapter 10, he's in Jericho. And the section stops in chapter 11 and verse 1 when he gets to Jerusalem. What's interesting is that Mark gives two chapters to this journey motif, this, this trek of Jesus and his disciples from outside of Palestine all the way down to Jerusalem. Matthew gives one chapter. Luke gives 11 chapters. So, so it just gives you a difference about what's going on in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But now there's a narrative context. And this is really important for what we want to look at today. You see, there are, as we've seen in our study in Mark, two great sections. Chapters 1 to 831, the only persons in Guinea that recognize Jesus in the first eight chapters are the demons. But when you get to chapter 8 and verse 31, Peter makes his great confession. And that leads us into the second section, which goes all the way through to the resurrection text that we looked at together back on Easter. Um, and that's where Jesus is teaching his disciples because they finally got it. You are the Christ. Or at least they said they got it. Um, now, our text is part of some pretty tough conversations that Jesus has with his disciples so that they get Peter's confession right. But this whole section from 831 to 1045, while Jesus is traveling, is really about discipleship, about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to follow him. So he's explaining to them this, this eminent expectation that is before them about the king is coming. There's a secret to be unveiled, and Jesus is unpacking the secret. Why, he's the secret. Uh, um, he is saying, hey, the here and now is really important. He's affirming the here and now, which means that the evil and the suffering that he will go through is not the last word. And so, therefore, the book and this paragraph is really, really important about being a disciple. That's why the big point I want to communicate this morning is that in this passage where Jesus is going to talk about marriage, Jesus is saying marriage is central to discipleship. But here's the fun part about Matthew, about Mark. Matthew does it a little bit. Occasionally, throughout his book, Peter or, um, uh, Mark will stop and he'll say, let the reader understand. Um, he does it in chapter 4. He does it in chapter 6. He does it in chapter 7. He does it in chapter 8. In chapter 13, he actually says, let the reader understand. And it's kind of Mark's signal. I'm not just writing to the early church that I'm speaking to in Egypt. I'm speaking to you. Let the reader understand. So there's kind of the context, both geographical and then the storyline that we're in. Okay, 
Let's read the text. Mark chapter 10, verse 2. Some Pharisees came to test him, okay? To test him, the text says. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now watch what Jesus does. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they says, they said, check the change, the difference in the verb. Moses allowed, mandated, if you will, a man to write a certificate of divorce, a certificate of dismissal to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment to you. But from the beginning of creation, God made male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined, and they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then, in the house, the disciples began to talk to him about this matter. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, he said to them, he commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples sternly rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. And he took one of them in his arms and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Don't divorce, verse 13 to 16, from verses 2 to 12. Okay, what does Jesus do? Let's unpack the text for a minute. So in verse 2, You've got these religious leaders, primarily Pharisees, who are testing Jesus. It's not obvious what the test is, um, but it's kind of typical what was going on in Second Temple Judaism. The technical term here is, is that this is a halakhic debate. The, the word in Hebrew for halakha means to find the way. And so it was typical in Jewish interaction to take all of the orders and the prescriptions of the Jewish texts to codify them and to come up with a halakak, a way. And so maybe what they were trying to find out from Jesus is, what's your way? They probably also wanted to find out if he was as much against Moses as they suspected. Now, here, here's, what's, here's what's funny about the test. The practice of divorce in Second Temple Judaism was, was really quite accepted. It was quite typical. Not a whole lot different from us today. The question was, what were the legitimate grounds for divorce? So this was a debate within Judaism as to what to do about Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And so... What does Jesus do? So Jesus, and there's a, not a, it's not really a play on words, it's a play on terms. He said, okay, what did Moses command you? 
And they, were so, well, and they replied by saying, well, here's what he allowed us to do. So obviously, Jesus wasn't going to get caught in their trap. And so he knew that Moses had allowed divorce. He prohibited remarriage. And he did it to protect the woman. But Jesus, in this exchange, makes two huge moves. He says, Moses did all of that because your hearts are like rocks, the hardness of your heart. And so what does Jesus do? He moves from a debate on Deuteronomy 24, which was finally given just because they were so hard, and he moves it back to creation. Um, if you will, Jesus was trumping scripture with scripture. He was forcing them to think. And so what does he do? He doesn't literally quote Genesis chapter 2. He doesn't directly quote Genesis chapter 1. He alludes to it. Mark's very clear. There's lots of times when Mark has Jesus citing scripture. But there's lots of times when Jesus, he makes an allusion to it. Which means it's all really important. And so what Jesus does is, he's not going to get caught in just helping them codify their behavior. He drives them back to God's intentions. He forces them to think back through what did God really want, going back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and how all of this is rooted in creation. And then he does something really amazing. Verse 9. Now, the English is, is, is very exact, but it, it misses all the impact of the Greek. Because really what Jesus says now in verse 9 is, because what Theos joins, Anthropos cannot separate. And he creates the sacredness of what's going on. But then Mark has Jesus doing the typical Jesus thing. When they're in the home, Jesus unpacks the whole text, the whole test. You see, Jewish tradition had put everything on the male side. And if you go back and look at the test, when he mandated the man to give the certificate of divorce, which was not at all what Deuteronomy 24 was about. Deuteronomy 24 was all about protecting the woman. And when we read other Jewish literature from Jesus' time, the craziest reasons were given for a man to leave his wife. But Deuteronomy 24 was all about protecting the woman in these crazy cases. And so what does Jesus do? He goes beyond the way 
He's not going to side with any group. And listen to what he says. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so all of a sudden, Jesus says, the sexual freedom of the man is no different than the sexual freedom of the woman. And he's creating an egality that is unparalleled in any other Jewish literature. But what had Jesus done by trumping Deuteronomy, the creation text? You see, he was giving a perspective that marriage is rooted not in laws, not in ceremonies, not in simple practices, but in the first institution that God ever created in creation, and that was in the formation of marriage and the family. That was what God intended. That's why we say marriage is sacred. Now, you'd think, end of the story. But Mark does something fascinating. Mark takes this little story about children. Now, he'd already talked about children in chapter 9. But I wonder if Mark was also saying, hey, wait a minute. If you want to get this, you've got to be like a child. When Matthew takes this same story, he puts it in a discourse in Mark, in Matthew chapter 18. And he says, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is like a little child. And if you want to understand God's intentions, you've got to become like a child. And that's really where Jesus is pushing here. Because think about it for a minute. Jesus is saying in this passage, in Mark chapter 9, and in Matthew chapter 18, that if you want to understand the ways of God, you've got to do something that is genetically impossible. My friends, Glenn Smith, on the 1st of August, 2021, cannot become a little child. That's genetically impossible. Which means this is all about conversion. This is all about changing direction. This is about having a perspective on God's rule created in creation. And my friends, as the people of God in our era, where marriage is one of the most battered institutions that exists, if we want to understand God's perspective, We've got to keep a conversion. We've got to see things through God's point of view. We've got to change direction. And he is saying, this isn't about all the little prescriptions that are going to allow you to be divorced, to leave one another, to treat each other badly. This is about what I want from creation because what I put in place, nobody can unpack it. It's sacred. 
Now, before we get to the so what, let me illustrate this. Over my um, multiple years, we won't put a number on it, of uh, vocational pastoral ministry, um, I've had the, the wonderful privilege of celebrating uh, tons of marriages. Um, my wife has the exact number, um, but that's immaterial. But um, back on um, uh, Victoria Day weekend, I celebrated the last wedding that I've done. Uh, celebrating weddings during COVID is not fun. Um, but uh, my niece decided to get married, and she wanted me to celebrate her wedding. Um, and so what I want to do for a couple of minutes is to share with you my homily, to show you how I think Mark 10 works when the church takes it seriously. So you're invited to listen. Her name is Jessica. His name is Paul. Jessica, Paul, today you are announcing publicly your commitment to each other in the union of your intimate friendship in marriage. Now, notions like commitment, intimate friendship, and certainly marriage, are not amongst the most popular terms and institutions in our culture. But as the people of God created in his image, your marriage is part of the graces that he established in creation, perseveres during the fall, and desires that we honor while we wait for all things to be recapitulated in him in the end. But your marriage will always be a daily commitment to pursue intimate friendship. Now, you chose a text for your wedding. It was taken from Romans chapter 14 and 15. And that bigger passage for the verses that you chose to read described the conflict that was at the heart of why St. Paul wrote this majestic letter to those house churches in Rome. And the section that you had us read this morning begins the conclusion of all of his thoughts. It is, if you will, like the beginning of the final part of Beethoven's great sixth, uh, sixth symphony that includes the pastoral, or in my world, it's the last trumpet solo by Miles Davis in his great tune, Kind of Blue. And that's what Paul was trying to do. You see, God is described in your passage as being steadfast and encouraging. And that steadfastness and that encouragement births harmony, unity, peace, if you will. It's with a view to God getting the credit and so, because you want your wedding to be marked by welcome, you are accepting him to be at the heart of your marriage. 
but so that you develop welcome in your marriage and so that you practice it as part of your daily intimate friendship and so that it will flourish, let me give you four thoughts to mull over as you begin your journey. Now, I, I say four thoughts because um, if my memory serves me correctly, when I celebrated uh, the first marriage that I did after I got married, um, probably would have said something like this. Um, here are 10 absolutes to absolutely succeed in your marriage. Um, after I'd been married 10 years, um, I probably would have said something like, um, here are seven principles to succeed in your marriage. Well, Sandy and I just celebrated 45 years of marriage, and so today, here are four thoughts that you might want to mull over if you want to survive in marriage. Okay, here's my first principle for you to mull over. You see, Jesus rooted marriage in Mark chapter 10, not in the ceremony, not in the signing of the registrar, not in signing legal documents, but he rooted it in creation. You see, God's master narrative, it reads like a fascinating story. It's about the arrival of the king who's going to be Lord over all. And so we can say, you and I have been invited into the story where the king wants to reign in every part of our lives, including our marriages. But if you want your marriage to flourish, you have to seek to know him intimately, and you want him to be at the heart of your discussions, your vocation, your sexuality, and creation. That's first thing to mull over, Christ at the center. Now, now the second and the third principles come right out of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, because he said, a man will leave his father and mother, the implication being the woman will too. And that's what I like to call the social part of your marriage. You are creating a new relationship. It's important to cultivate that socially by how you spend time together, by how you play together, how you vacation together, how you work together. If God chooses to give you children, how you will be socially with them. So make the social part of your relationship really, really important. But then Jesus continues. Third thing to mull over. He says, and you will join together. Old English used to use the idea of cleaving. See, this is the emotional side of your relationship. If you will, this is the love component. So that in your conversations, in your dialogue, in your disagreements, in your fights, you want to make sure that you have cleaved, that you are emotionally binding. This means that in your relationship, you want to become the master of your souls, of your mate's soul. You're going to want to develop an emotional intelligence to be able to read the heart and the mind of your mate. So, you're part of God's great big story. You want to develop social maturity together. You're going to want to develop emotional maturity. There's my third principle. You see, this is all about mutual respect. 
this is about that grafting together that you talked about with me when we defined marriage. And it's treating the other with the utmost respect and honor. Now, my fourth reflection also comes from Jesus. Because in quoting the creation text, he said, and the two shall become one. So you see, this is then the physical dimension of your relationship. This is the pursuit of sexual pleasure as an integral part of your flourishing. Now, heavens knows, our culture glorifies beyond measure sex. Now, don't fall into that, but don't go to the other extreme. You see, joining together as one flesh is about developing fidelity. Sexual fidelity, emotional fidelity, vocational fidelity. And so, Jessica, Paul, here are four things to mull over. And it's rooted in what God wants from creation, what Jesus reiterated both in Matthew and Mark, and what, interestingly enough, St. Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. You see, you get the picture? Starts in creation, continues during the fall, as we look forward to what God is going to accomplish for the whole cosmos. Let me pray for you. You see, I think, I think the text works. The text underscores how sacred marriage really is. And it is something that we need to be so committed to as God's people. And so that leads me then, in conclusion, to my so what. Now, let me begin the application by saying something really, really important here. No one paragraph of the Bible can carry all the interpretive weight of what God wants for us as his people. So we can't make Mark chapter 10 say more than what Mark chapter 10 says. So, of course, if a woman is being physically abused in her marriage, we're not going to quote Mark 10. If a young man in his young adulthood senses from the Spirit of God that God is calling him to a life of celibacy, we're not going to quote Mark 10. It doesn't cover all of the issues. And that's why we need a new set of lenses. We need these images from all of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, so that we can understand what God really wants in the sacredness and in the sanctity of marriage. But here's the key point. The fundamental portrait in all that the Bible teaches is an affirmation of marriage between a male and a female. It's permanent, it's binding, because they become one. But let me also say very clearly, there are exceptions. The New Testament gives us two. Matthew has one of those exceptions where he talks about unfaithfulness, using the word porneia, okay? When there is sexual infidelity, there's an exception to the rule. 
Paul talks about a second exception in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, when there is spiritual infidelity on the part of one of the partners. It's a second exception. But the rule is, is that marriage is sacred because of what God wants right from the beginning. And so therefore, how do my lenses work? Okay, let me give you three of them. Uh, the first one is this, the rule of God. Uh, this one makes really good sense to me. Marriage is to be upheld and honored, as the writer to the Hebrews says, okay, uh, that your marriage bed be protected and honored. Because this is what God wants. This is one of the institutions of creation. And so therefore, when we think about what God wants through the lens, the glasses of the kingdom of God, we're going to say, hey, in our community, we're going to really protect marriages. We're going to really advance marriages because this is what God wants. This is about God's great big picture. We'll take other passages. We'll take the exception clauses seriously. But marriage is really important to God. It's part of his rule. Which leads into my second image, my second set of lenses, which is about the community of faith, the church, the ecclesia. Um, marriages need to be honored by us as followers of Jesus because it's not a private affair. I meet lots of young adults in my work as a professor, and I'll often hear things like this. Um, I, think, I think I need to move in with my my partner, because we need to find out whether or not we're compatible. Um, now, those are followers of Jesus. Uh, followers, people who are not followers of Jesus, they don't even, they just do it. Now, um, there's lots of blunt things that I say about that argument. We won't get into them this morning. Um, but, but here's what's so important about the church and marriage. Marriage is not private. It's public. That's why leaving is so important. I call leaving the social part. But Walter Trowbridge, in his wonderful book, he actually says that leaving is the legal part. Uh, that's really important to, to keep in mind. And in a culture like ours, particularly here in Quebec, where uh, not just because of COVID, but because of societal pressures. There are more marriages being signed by the, the, the registry than ever before. But as, as followers of Jesus, because of creation, we're going to want to say, we are going to honor marriages because they're public. Now, I'm not saying that you need to have a big ceremony. I'm not saying you need to spend tons of money. I probably would say things contrary to that. But we want to make sure that the community takes part in the public act of marriage. Because that's then how marriages get protected, get stimulated, get nourished. And so then that leads to my third um, image, which is discipleship. As I've said, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear me clearly. Marriage is central to discipleship. And I think that's because being a follower of Jesus means that we take the cross seriously. And heaven's knows in marriage. We suffer, we ache, we pain, we grow. And all of that 
doesn't just make our marriages better, it makes us better disciples. Because I learned to follow Jesus with Sandy. Sandy refines me. Sandy is used by God to perfect me. God uses Sandy by the Holy Spirit to make me a better follower of Jesus. I hope it's somewhat reciprocal. And you see, so therefore when we think about the sacredness of marriage through the lenses of the rule of God, the church, and discipleship, all of a sudden we begin to understand a little bit more about what Jesus was getting at. But don't forget how Mark put the passage together. He finished it by talking about children. And I don't think we can understand marriage in our culture unless we become like little children and do what is genetically impossible. We get converted so that we see how great this institution is. Now, granted, this morning, I'm primarily talking out of this passage um, to those of you that are married or to those of you that are thinking about getting married. Um, there are other passages in Scripture which deal with other dimensions of discipleship. But um, if you want to talk more about this, make sure you contact the elders. Come up and, and chat with me because I just think that what God wants to do through our marriages is all part of his great strategy for human history. So that when it's all said and done, he and he alone gets all the credit. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, um, I just want to thank you for how deeply you uh, challenged me in restudying the text and thinking about it and putting this together. I thank you for my wife and for how she is such an integral part of me being a follower of you. And I thank you for my sisters and brothers that are married today, that this passage would um, stimulate them uh, to go deeper in their marriages if they're facing challenges, that they would take those seriously as disciples. But I also pray for my sisters and brothers here that maybe have gone through the pain of divorce for whatever reasons, and that that wouldn't harden them about what you want. And for my sisters and brothers here that are committed to a life of celibacy, <clears throat> Father, thank you for that wonderful vocational call and continue to uh, affirm them as they follow you. Because together, as married people, as divorced people, as celibate people, our great desire is to follow you so that you get all the credit. And we pray this in your name. Amen.